of this week's VFX show. I'm Matt Wallen, and uh, we are here uh, with uh, two of our regulars, uh, uh, Mike Seymour. Mike, how are you doing? Good. Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, and Jason Diamond. Jason, uh, how's it going with you? Uh, rainy, or was rainy earlier, but now it's better. <laughs> I know, right? It's crazy summer weather. So we are here this week, and we're going to talk about uh, DC's possibly, I don't know what you guys might think, but uh, possibly DC's first big hit from the DC universe. I don't know. Um, certainly uh, box office-wise, that might be the case, but we're going to be talking about Wonder Woman, of course. Um, so uh, bef- as we often do, uh, before we get into anything else, let's talk about uh what we thought of the picture before we get into the visual effects specifically. So, um, Mike, what did you think of Wonder Woman? Well, firstly, do we think that it's the biggest hit they've had in the universe or the biggest hit they've had since The Dark Knight and the, uh, the earlier Batman films? Because, I mean, I think what you're referring to is like recent times, right? It's not like Batman, the Batman films haven't generated a fair amount of box office and an enormous amount of critical acclaim. I could be basting it with a little bit of my own special flavoring uh, in that regard. <laughs> really? <laughs> Perhaps. Because, you know, that, that whole uh, kind of Dark Knight thing and Heath Ledger thing was just magnificent cinema. And uh, anyone that says otherwise would be, uh, be asking for an argument with the Oscars <laughs> that it won, for example, or the immense amount of box office it made or the incredibly high rating it got on, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. But anyway, moving on. Um, I thought this was a great film. I thought it was a, a lot of fun. I, I, I posted afterwards that I said, honestly, I think they should make Wonder Woman the center of the DC uh, Justice League universe in the same way they made Iron Man the sort of basically the center of the uh, Avengers universe. And one of the reasons I say that is that apart from the fact that it's good and she is good, um, she seems to have a really good fit for that particular role because she's been around for a really long time. She's maybe not immortal, but close to it, but certainly she would have this sort of perspective of being a, um, an anchor that could, uh, could carry multiple different uh, superheroes over different journeys. But more to the point, at the moment they're going down the Batman path, that Batman's going to be just like um, Tony Stark, that they have no superhero powers other than they're super rich and pretty bright. And it feels like that's just such a copy. Whereas if they went down the different path of having <clears throat> Wonder Woman as, you know, this female lead who isn't super rich, but is incredibly uh, kind of noble in her pursuits and interesting in her powers that they just make for a different franchise. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a Justice League that I feel is going to be a pale shadow or reflection of the, uh, the Avengers. But I don't know. That's my two cents. Hmm. Uh, okay. Jason, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what did you think of Wonder Woman? I, uh, I really liked it. I enjoyed the movie a lot, actually. I, was, I, I wouldn't say I was surprised because I had heard a lot of uh, good feedback about it. Um, but more because DC has not made good superhero movies generally, except for the first two Batmans uh, and, or Batman, would it be? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I was more surprised from a studio standpoint, not from a filmmaker standpoint. Patty Jenkins obviously knows what she's doing. Um, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Uh, the visual effects were really nice. Uh, and I tend to agree with Mike, this copycat nature uh, that DCs didn't start out with because they started out with Batman, even though Marvel started out with Iron Man uh, or sort of 
and you would think that was copy. They went with in a whole like larger epic non-comedic direction. And so it seemed like they were kind of taking the lead from that standpoint. But then every other mm -hmm. DC movie has been shit. So pretty much. So Yeah. So I think Yeah. What? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say I, Go I would agree I would agree that Batman's only real uh, ability to lead the Justice League is that he has the money to do it. You know, I don't. They don't say where Diana Prince. You know how she makes her living, quote unquote. Uh, but I think uh, I think from a leadership standpoint, she's probably a better leader, at least the way the movies have portrayed them. You know, not necessarily mm -hmm. from the comics. Yeah, I think probably the only unfortunate thing I would say about this movie, although I would say just at the outset, I, I love this movie. I thought it was great. I think it's the best of the DC movies to date um, with the caveat of the the Christopher Nolan films, I think, which we can talk about a little bit more. I think they, they actually, I, I kind of walked away from this film with kind of an interesting thought about um, maybe what has been going on in the DC universe and in the DC sort of filmmaking pantheon of making these movies. And I think in a weird way, the Christopher Nolan films maybe um, set up the, the Justice League films in a way to have some of the issues that we've sort of been discussing. Um, but I thought this was a great film. I thought it, it, it uh, was, there's a few, uh, and the effects overall were really great. There's a few uh, comp things that I thought were kind of tough that we can talk about some. Um, be curious to hear if you guys would concur. Um, but I thought that this was the movie and the character and the script and the portrayal of a character that I thought we should have seen with the Superman movies. Like she's so sort of pure of character, oh, yeah. pure of heart. And I thought um, this is kind of what we should have seen in the Superman pictures. Um, but overall, I think um, for, you know, a female superhero, for Wonder Woman, sort of the, you know, the... Um, the ultimate female superhero um, in comic book lore, at least, whether it's DC or Marvel. Um, I thought uh, this was incredibly well executed and um, just a, a heck of a lot of fun to watch in the theater. Um, so uh, <laughs> I think, I think one of so, the things that we need to sort of not walk mm -hmm. away from is this idea of the, um, the joyous nature of, what we're watching now there's two ways it can be joyous i can be joyous because it's wisecracking and obviously tony stark is is exactly that but you can also be joyous because somebody has a joy in what they're doing and i found her joy in discovering the west the world in, in particular england and stuff that was joyous and as a consequence the film was up and as a consequence i enjoyed watching it right whereas a lot of the other films take the sort of fundamental starting place that the world has to be gritty and nasty and cynical and mean and whatever because that's the cool hip thing to do, right? Everything's kind of dirty and nasty and a bit mean and, and grungy and, and dark. And so the original, um, you know, Dark Knight stuff was that in comic book form as it was that in film. But I feel like now it's refreshing to have a character. And also I think that's what made Captain America appealing, right? It's otherwise a fairly kind of popcorny sort of, you know, uninteresting character because he's just so goody-goody two-shoes. But it's his optimism and stuff that kind of makes him interesting. So that's when we didn't see that optimism in in the Superman. This kind of like went really kind of bleak. Um, and everything was super destruction and wind everything up to 11, which it was in both his film and in Superman versus Batman. 
You know, whereas in this film, you've got that. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of aspirationally happy view of the world if you can pull it off. Well, yeah, I was thinking that actually this this movie in particular, Wonder Woman, is the modern day DC equivalent of, to compare to the Marvel Universe, it is what the first Iron Man film was. It is that level of like joy, fun, camp, aspiration. But -hmm. I think on the aspirational level, it's actually probably in terms of DC films, it's much more in line with the original Richard Donner Superman film. I think it has more of that DNA going on than it does of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. I loved those Donner films when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing, the thing about this is, you have the dirty, gritty, you know, World War One London sort of, you know, the world, to, the war to end all wars, and you have the serious nature of, you know, whatever. But then you have her coming in and slicing through that with a hot knife, you know, and just being like, "Well, I don't understand why you would say that because there's a simple answer. We just have to do this," which actually turned out to be that, which was, which I thought. I mean, we can say spoiler alert now because we're just going to talk about the movie. So if you haven't seen it go hit pause and do your thing. But, uh, you know, the I I turned to my kid when they first showed Sir Patrick giving his speech. There, However they set it up, which I think was really well done, I turned to my kid and I said, I think he's the bad guy, right? And, but I figured it would be like from a political standpoint. And then... And then when you go through and they and they try to give you the the rope a dope that Danny Houston uh, is the bad guy, and especially because he has the the gas to give him the glowy superpower, and you're like, okay, that makes sense that he would be the guy. And then when she kills him, nothing happens. And then you get the super heavy metal, you know, Dio fight with the real <laughs> with Sir Patrick, who is Hades, and their brother sister, and you get the whole thing. And she was correct. It's the perfect payoff without being hokey. And you get both the political angle and the supernatural angle. Um, I was completely satisfied uh, from a plot standpoint. You're talking about the big battle at the end with yeah. Ares? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So with Thulis, David Thulis. Yeah. 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 David Thewlis and his curious, uh, curiously thin little mustache. Yeah. <laughs> that even as Aries, he had a mustache, which was amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, one of the things that I had been thinking about, and I'm curious, uh, maybe Mike, uh, if, if you had any thoughts about this too, like I, I sort of was thinking that, you know, we've, we've all kind of talked about, I think, um, as a community by and large, I think there's been maybe not universal agreement, but I think uh, large kind of leanings in the direction of thinking that some of the DC films um, at the outset, whether it was the uh, first Superman movie or Batman versus Superman, kind of a feeling that maybe these films weren't kind of striking the same tone um, that we were experiencing in the Marvel universe. And they didn't, didn't kind of achieve that same level of, um, you know, uh, uh, box office, well, or not even box office success, but um, audience appeal, maybe let's say. Um, they weren't quite as popular, I think, um, by and large. And one of the things that I was thinking after watching this movie was maybe that part of what maybe the DC universe was suffering from and, and Zack Snyder coming in to make um, these first couple of pictures, starting with the, uh, I think starting right with the Superman movie, um, was that 
they had had the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy as sort of the template. And those movies were obviously a huge success. They were hugely popular. Um, they had a huge uh, fan base and they were so dark and realistic and kind of gritty. And I think there was sort of a, a desire to kind of continue that thread, but with different filmmakers, with some different um, uh, creators involved. And those movies did not quite succeed in the same way. And I think this is the first film since then, anyway, to come along and kind of try to, it, it felt like to me, kind of try to reinvent that wheel a little bit. And I'm curious, um, uh, Mike, what, what you think of that? Like, do you think that's true or do you think, um, how I think, would you? Yeah, no, I think that, that is absolutely true. I think it's, there are a couple of reasons why you can do it in this film. Um, so firstly, I don't think we should go any further without just acknowledging how significant it is that it's a female heroine and it's a female director, right? It's incredibly absolutely. important at many, many levels. But in addition to the fact that you've got those creative forces at play, you've set the story with a character who is out of time and you've set a character into a uh, sort of World War I back in the days. And so we have this sort of naive or a view that people back then were more naive and less cynical than we are today. Now, I don't know that's true because it's pretty bleak times and stuff, but, you know, it's easier as it was in Captain America to do some of the sort of more... Um, I'm here for king and country when you're setting it in World War One or World War Two than it is in you're setting it, you know, in the Vietnam War or in um, in Afghanistan. So I think you ha you they gave themselves, I guess, the opportunity to to do that. Then they gave themselves a character who doesn't have a cynical television-based kind of. I went through the Nixon and and Trump years kind of perspective on life, but <laughs> says, you know, wow, like why don't why doesn't this good? And she's coming from a society that. Um, that has a very athletic, positive, role model-y kind of shiny kind of, uh, you know, heritage. And we all sort of buy into that. I don't know how they actually have any children or how anyone actually ever causes anyone to be born because it seemed um, well, remarkably... They, she does say that men are needed for uh, procreation, of course. But, but do they eat not, them They're not that? needed I for see. pleasure, No, says. but I mean, is it, a, is it a sort of... I don't know. It just seems weird. Like, I mean, <laughs> obviously, and, and they, you know, they could have gone in some really bad ways. I mean, it could, I mean, obviously there's been a kind of entire history, um, both in a comic form with kind of uh, uh, references to kind of islands of Lesbos, as well as like uh, in actual, the lesbian community getting behind um, some of the shows. What was the one that was uh, set in New Zealand? You know, um, uh, the oh, Cena. Cena, yeah. So the lesbian community really got behind that and, uh, so I've got friends that thought that was just terrific um, for that reason. Sort of very heavy, uh, almost nod and a wink subtext. And so I have no problem um, if, if it was like, a, you know, going the way of Xena, but they didn't do that. They decided to take it more at face value and just say, I think the audience will go with us if we just make the mother uh, positive and the people around her positive. We don't have people betraying each other and being nasty and, and wicked. And, you know, there are disputes. It's not like everybody's perky perky, but it's, um, you know, in the way that uh, we saw back in, um, the, as you say, in the Donna uh, Superman when, you know, there mm -hmm. are bad people and they get in prison kind of thing. So, yeah, and I think they set themselves up to be positive and therefore they could play it out. But the question is, like, where does it go from here? Because... You know, I saw the trailer for Justice League before I saw this film and I just thought to myself, I just don't really want to see that film. Like it just I seemed agree. the effects were so over the top. Aquaman looked like he was going to be this brooding, nasty, 
bastard. And and I'm sure that's an interesting character to play. So I grew up with Aquaman where he was like a heck of a nice guy and hung out with the whales and the dolphins and, you know, was just like... Uh, he was kind of so, like Captain sure. America of DC in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, he was really positive. And I had imagined that there would be some, you know... Uh, protecting the ocean, you know, this is a unspoiled thing and like a whole lot of, you know, in harmony with nature part to his personality. Instead of it looks like he's like super brooding guy who's um, just cranky uh, to be around. And then him but jumping off that like, at the... Bro. He was like, thanks, bro. Yeah. Or then you're like, oh my God, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. So I didn't see the Justice League trailer before uh, Wonder Woman. I didn't it even see it. It looked terrible. I turned to my kid and I said... I'm going to point something out. A good trailer. That's not a good trailer. He's like, why? It looks super fun. I said, but do you know anything about the movie? Like something. Who the bad guy is? Who, what? Something. Just like, I don't want it. I don't need it all laid out. But like, I literally have no idea what that movie is about. Other than that, all the heroes are going to come together to form the Justice League for some yeah. reason. Yeah, pretty pretty sad bit of uh, side sort of industry news was that... Um, Zack Snyder and yeah. his wife actually had to back out of finishing post-production because of a family, uh, sort of a family tragedy. Um, and so Joss Whedon, uh, strangely enough, of Avengers fame and uh, Buffy and all those kind of films that uh, Joss Whedon's been involved in, um, is coming in to finish post-production on Justice League, which... Um, you know, is Which, is really cool. I mean, it's great that they're able to kind of do that. But yeah, kind of. Well, it a, also says kind of a tough story. Yeah, it says two things. One, obviously, they must be good friends. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming, and also that also I think speaks to his dissatisfaction with the way Marvel treated him uh, for his last Avengers movie. Yeah, which sounded like a somewhat unpleasant experience. Yeah. Well, I got to say, in Josh, we trust, right? So, you know, if anything, <laughs> that's the only reason I want to see the film now. <laughs> Literally, they put up a trailer that said, that said we're really sorry uh, that our previous director has had some issues, but on the upside, Josh is coming in to direct. Buy your tickets now. I'd be like, okay, sure, here we go. So uh, as this is the VFX show, uh, and I know that we oftentimes do get uh, derided here and there for <laughs> spending too much time on plot, and we can sort of touch uh, on plot as it comes up in what we discuss with regards to visual effects too, um, uh, keeping it sort of organic maybe in that way. But um, in getting into the visual effects in this movie, um, I'm curious, um, what did you guys think? Jason, let's start with you. Um, what did you think of the... Uh, the visual effects overall in the film and um uh but then also uh in the first sequence in the film when we sort of start on the uh the island uh i'm i sort of agree with what you guys had said in your earlier summations which was that the vfx overall were great uh i thought stylistically the way they handled the fights and the slow-mo kind of and i would obviously attribute this to the director uh, to Patty Jenkins uh, and her choices, you know, with her VFX team and her VFX supervisor, the way that they shot the fights and the way they chose to focus on her uh, abilities to show her mostly physically strong. And then occasionally, obviously she can jump real far and do, do the supernatural stuff, but just as a, from a fighting combat standpoint, I think they did a really good job of highlighting that uh, in, in a look that is, very tired 
can be very tired rather with a slow-mo ramping. But for some reason in this movie, it like, it didn't feel like a Zack Snyder, like, okay, well we have to do that because he's the DC guy and that's what he does. Like I, Mm -hmm. it really felt like it worked for the story. uh, And I really liked the way that they handled it. I also liked, this isn't necessarily VFX, although it probably ended up dovetailing into it is when it was dark, like when she went to get on the boat to leave with Chris Pine, like it was dark. There wasn't these magical moonlight with this great edging and like, you know, it was like you could barely see what was on the screen. And I appreciate that because that's what it looks like when it's dark, you know, and yeah, we, and we shot like night, night for night, night for night. Yeah. And, um, but the, my favorite part about the island sequence was when they told the history of the Amazons, mm-hmm. the animated kind of 3d but not slightly plainer but you know subtle camera moves um it reminded me of sort of some of the choices from uh monster calls yeah yeah that Uh, was really cool i agree it just yeah it just had a really good it just felt really good but in a world of having to or wanting to probably as a director do something different yet almost everything's been done just, yeah. you know, picking a classic thing and just really na- like just nailing something often works just as well as pioneering something. And I think in this case, like that was my favorite part of the of that island scene beyond just the general uh, stuff I liked about the island. But I think that was my standout for that opening section. Mike, what about you? Well, I guess for me, the sequence that summed up the visual effects in this film best was the crossing of No Man's Land. Um, The opening sequence was really good. No Man's Land for me did all the right things and yet was absurd. So it it was really dumb because just shoot her ankle, right? I mean, she's got a shield. You can (laughs) not get through with the shield thing. Stop aiming at the shield. Maybe just aim at her ankle. Um, And also just the, you know, sheer kind of... uh, I don't know, daft nature of the whole setup. But from a visual effects point of view, everything landed. Um, it was lovely separation of foreground and background, um, the lighting, the, 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 you know, you were with her at that point in the story. Like it was like, it was a reveal of her personality as, as Wonder Woman. Everyone was almost like, I mean, I wasn't, but you know, it was like that kind of, you go with her, you're like cheering her on kind of thing. And then, and then, of course, you forgive the absurdity of the proposition, but you just want the visual effects to deliver a powerful, <clears throat> she's struggling against it kind of thing with it, you know, clearly visualized by this hail of bullets and the sparks and, and everything about that that then lights stuff up. And then you get the mix of the slow-mo, the fast. Um, it didn't feel like a stage. You know, so much of that World War One stuff in the trenches always looks like it's on a back uh, stage. Um, it had depth to it and scale to it, so it, it sort of shot off well. Um, and yet, you know, it wasn't like a ridiculously kind of... See, the, the thing I didn't like visual effects-wise is when she jumped up on the top of the clock tower at the end of that sort of middle bit when she's gone into the town because that just seemed to me like an absurd thing. There was no uh, sudden justification for being able to leap like... Um, like in terms know, of the, gravity and... Exactly, yeah. Whereas yeah. in that sequence, she was pushing against the the momentum of that many bullets hitting her shield and it wasn't just super easy and she wasn't able to miraculously cause every bullet to be 
perfectly ricocheted to kill every German that was firing at it, which is, you know, what they do sometimes, you know, they flick the bullets back and they kill everybody. Mm. It's like, really, you could work out the trajectory of all of that and allow for the bullets being smashed on you? No. So it was like, you know, everything played, everything worked, cinematography, just thought it was a great sequence. Although, of course, it was kind of dangerous because it was so daft, her dressed like you know, basically a dominatrix walking out across in the middle of no man's. I mean, it's just like such an absurd visual to have her. Yeah. I mean, if you'd walked around on set, you'd have been like, uh-oh, <laughs> we're going to buy this. Um, so the fact the visual effects team managed to pull that off. Now on the island, I think it was a little easier to pull it off because we were in this kind of oasis, tropical, whatever. Sandals so resort. Swinging. Yeah, Sandals Resort. So they're swinging on, on ropes and, you know, it's on down on the beach and so you kind of wear costumes on the beach and so it doesn't yeah. seem so weird. I'm curious, in the middle how, of, how, did, how, did each of, how did you guys see the movie? Did you see it 2D, 3D? I saw, I saw 2D, just regular 2D. I yes. Or standard. 2D, I think. Yeah, 2D, I think I saw yeah, 2D. Yeah, okay, so we, so we all saw 2D then. None of us saw it in stereo. No, I'm just curious because no, the, the first two shots establishing the island, like the first two shots where we see sort of, um, you know, the the Robin Wright general character and some of her her troops and they're sort of training and fighting and we see the very, very young uh, child, Diana. Yep. Um, some of those, those first two establishing shots of um, that environment, um, I thought those first two shots composite wise, like were really tough. Like there were, it was very much like foreground, background. Like it was very A over B. I didn't, they didn't integrate mm. very well, at least in the, in the theater where I saw it. I didn't, I felt like they really jumped out at me. And I was, and my first thought in the very beginning of the movie was like, uh-oh, like this could be pretty dicey. But those were really the only shots at the outset that were really, really tough. And from there on out, um, and I was wondering if those work better in 3D, but if none of us saw it in that way, because they, they look like shots that might work better in that, um, in the, in stereoscopic. But, um, but yeah, those first two shots were pretty rough. And then, and then I thought all the other stuff on the island overall, well, I did think some of the, the art direction was, um, a little hokey. Some of the, the digital map paintings in terms of the design aesthetic, I wasn't super crazy about of some of the elements of the world, uh, itself. Um, but I thought that overall the, the look of the island was, was, um, the way, uh, everything was shot there looked really cool and the costuming and stuff. And I, I love the scene, uh, of the, when the soldiers, the German soldiers are coming, uh, onto the beach and all the, uh, the Amazon, uh, warriors come, Riding oh, it on yeah. horseback, I thought that was really cool. Uh, I did have one question though, uh, which was <laughs> just a, as a plot point: like we see the two, uh, two or three landing craft, and then a large ship in the background. Like a, I guess it's supposed to be like a, a troop ship or a battleship yeah. or something. It looks kind of like a big cruise ship, but um, and uh, they fight off these guys who come in the landing craft. But then there's never any like resolution, like of the, the big ship that passed through the barrier, like in the sort of the hidden barrier, uh, that protected the Island. And I was sort of like, huh, what, <laughs> what happened there? Like, what, what, what about that big boat? Like they never had to sort of fight off all the people on the big ship. Um, a little plot hole there, I thought. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think overall, uh, that sequence was, uh, was, was pretty successful. Um, and from there we go to, uh, 
uh, we have our, our, our scene can, can on I the... Just, sorry, can yeah, I just yeah. add one point to that? My problem with that scene at a technical level um, mm. was, I mean, I thought it was really good visually, but generally speaking, all the cliff was obviously added in digitally, right? Like that was not um, a cliff there as I understand it. And so my problem was it felt to me like whoever was doing the compositing had the matte edges too sharp for the blur amount of the faces. And you could only pick it because they went to all this trouble to give us these slow-mo shots. And so you'd have a shot where there would be naturally either a defocus or a um, uh, like a motion blur that would have like, if you want to call it this, uh, X unit of um, motion blur in it. But the edging of it, of the comp, felt like it had half X. And so if the shutter caused an amount of blur on the face, I could extreme the same amount of blur on the edge of the hair. And what I was seeing was like a sharper edge on the hair. And so that gave it an, mm. a, a less than believable look. And it's particularly the case when she swings down and gets the bullet shot uh, that goes through to kill um, whoever it was that was swinging down. Because um, it was so slow-mo that you had like time to analyze the shot and kind of work out what was wrong. Whereas I didn't get that on the slow-mo sequences across um, the, uh, the No Man's Land. And for that matter, I didn't get it in the fight sequences when she's flying in on skidding across the floor. Sort of. Well, there was also a lot of smoke off. and atmosphere in the No Man's Land one, so less less background specific to... Well, but to I thought it was clever because Bagman, don't you think you could shoot... I mean, there was a lot of shoot-off. I'm surprised you said that because I thought there was less smoke there than you normally see on those, set, on those oh, sorts for sure. of shots. Yeah, yeah, but it and was still the depth like, really uh, helped more it. desolate. Yeah, it was definitely... True, yeah. Um, um, yeah, anyway... That's just what I thought. So uh, it was super critical point, but um, yeah, you, you, if the 3D kind of let me down in her leap shot because I just didn't feel like we had a believable piece of animation that justified that amount of leap, but the rendering was perfect. In this case, I think the comp was not quite nailing it, but hey, you know, that's just from watching it. Well, it's one of those things too where... Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jason. I was going to say, I thought, I thought from a... From a technical standpoint, not technical, from a, a visual standpoint, the showing the Amazons fighting gave you a a nice sort of visual language for what she'll be able to do ostensibly later in the film, but also how the fights are going to be shown uh, throughout the film. So you, it's almost like a little primer for how you're going to... Fight language. Yeah. Fight language. And it wasn't that standard like super inside cutty nolan stuff where you kind of don't know what's going on at times like it's very well framed in terms of description visual description you could really understand what was happening uh and granted they're just you know arrows and bullets but you know there wasn't a ton of fist fighting but i feel like uh you could have gotten lost where you were on the beach really easily which i didn't and uh, like I said, the visual language of how they fought, I thought was established really well. Um, and I did like, I think my favorite shot of the whole thing was the, the there's like, like four edits of the Robin Wright with the three arrows. Totally. Uh, oh. Yeah. was super, super <laughs> badass. Yeah. Robin Wright was so great in that whole sequence. And I did, I did like the, uh, the kind of highly slow-mo acrobatic nature of the yeah. battle too. I thought that that was really cool. And, and it really showed, uh, these female warriors as being, you know, sort of tough as nails and like had a, they had a fighting style that was, 
um, sort of supernatural in some ways, but also, uh, you know, unpredictable and, and sort of maybe unfamiliar too, to, you know, even, you know, all of us watching the movie too, which I thought was really cool. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I should point out, I think Deneg, who did, you know, the heavy lifting on the visual effects, did an outstanding job. It's just that for me, that was, you know, when we're here to offer up our opinions and yeah, if I sure. was looking at it, I would have just softened it in a bit more. Um, it's a hard thing to do though, because, you know, those super slow-mo shots are inherently odd because you're playing time different. I mean, we've seen popcorn opening at slow motion and it looks remarkably like a flower opening, right? And it's it's odd because you don't see things at that speed normally. But um, it's also some of the hardest comp work because you can just stare around the frame and, and, and you know, when you've got a fast action sequence, like it, you're kind of caught up in the moment and uh, it's so much harder to sort of stop it if you're well, watching it in I the think, cinema. Yeah. Yeah, and I, so I was going to say too that the, comp, the comps in those first two shots that I sort of noted earlier that I sort of took issue with, I think the reason why they stood out to me, uh, my guess, and this is pure speculation, but is that it looked like some of the foreground elements of sort of the, the warriors kind of uh, practicing and stuff with um, young Diana watching and then the sort of matte painting elements in the background. It looked like, you know, the matte painting elements are matte painting and the foreground elements were most likely shot I would guess on a stage, maybe on location and trying to comp those two elements together if if time of day isn't exactly right or lighting direction isn't exactly correct. Um, and if you don't have anything sort of as a mid-ground element in between, you know, those things are really hard to make, uh, to sell from a compositor's point of view if the shot design and shot execution um, doesn't come together really well. So, I mean, those are the kind of things that I was looking at in those first two shots. And I think also to the fact that it's, you know, it's an island environment um, near the sea. And so you're dealing with very little, um, you know, diffusion of light and stuff in the distance. Like, you know, there's uh, offshore breezes and stuff like that. So there's not a lot of, um, you know, haze in the background. So you're really trying to comp something that um, it really has to, it has to, everything has to sing kind of at the same level if it's going to kind of click together in a comp. Hey, um, you know that uh, that beach sequence, not, not looking out more towards the water beach sequence as the horses you mentioned before, like I think there's like about nine layers being put together there of fundamental action. Like this isn't like, just so everyone doesn't know, this isn't like a major stage thing that's all happening in front of the lens. This is like layer upon layer upon layer of live action built up. So for for the criticism I have of it, I also have praise for the integrating that many kind of live action plates and getting them all to work together. Yeah, for sure. Well, so uh, let's see. So from the island, right, we move on to uh, a, a sequence, uh, a short sequence on a boat, right, if I'm not mistaken, which is all kind of at night. It's mostly uh, character building sequences, right? And then we, we sort of very uh, quickly <laughs> over the course of one quick sleep arrive uh, in London. And uh, we have a couple shots, uh, establishing shots of, um, I guess, World War One era London, Uh that I think are uh, uh, you know pretty pretty uh, standard fare. I don't know if you guys would have anything to say about either of those. And then and it felt um, like Sherlock Holmes style, you know, like uh, the London of that era, similar era, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And like, and so many there have been so many uh, pretty pretty decent uh, uh, BBC or uh, you yeah. know, British produced shows like uh, Ripper Street and things like that, where they've really yeah. 
gone the distance to try to replicate some of those kind of aesthetics of that uh, sort of that era London. So I, I, I felt like that stuff was pretty clean. Um, I wanted to and, say I thought successful. that, uh, yeah, I thought that it was smart to pick World War One era uh, because you needed a time when um, a woman would would be suppressed, not like it's not still happening, but you know, uh, uh, in a, in a larger logical sense of where she would have to try and fit in, uh, where her naivete would, would not show her as weak, uh, but more like you were saying, Mike, sort of optimistic, like she's get him and go, but she doesn't understand the rules of the time. Um, and, uh, I also want to, while I'm thinking about it, Two things that made me really happy were one, you and Bremner, uh, who played the sniper, who is Spuds from oh, Train yeah. Spotting. Yeah. And mm. and Lucy Walker, is that her name? Lucy, I forget her name, but the woman who pays his secretary is Oh, from, she was great. Uh from uh the office, Shaun of the right? Dead. Well, and Shaun of the Dead, yeah. Yeah, the and the British office, I think. Yeah. Too, right? Yeah. So it was great to see them. Well, let's not forget too. Robin and and you know run, run, woman, run. I mean, she, she was great, Robin. I mean, I just think like we could have kept her alive. We would have loved to have seen her kind of come back. I think yeah. Robin Williams was terrific on the island. I mean, really terrific. Like just, you know. Who? Who are you talking Robin, about? Robin Wright, the, you know, from oh, uh, of House of Cards and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Forrest Gump. Yeah, she, no, of course. And she was amazing. Some Princess Bridey thing that was quite popular apparently, um, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I just felt like she was so strong on screen um, that your eye just kind of went to her. And, oh, for and, sure. Uh, and while we're, we're talking about casting for just one second, as I have deviated us onto, um, it's a really good decision with casting to cast your villain as somebody that everybody knows to be just an all-round great guy. And you're talking about David before as the kind of uh, supervillain. But, I mean, because of Harry Potter, he's, you know, everyone's favourite dad. And so, you know, you kind of went in there with the baggage that he wasn't going to be the villain because he's not normally the villain because you've seen him in so many films where he wasn't the villain. I just find it's always good if you can pull off casting like that that isn't odd, that doesn't make you go, oh, you know. I mean, people have said, for example, the last Mummy film would have been much better if Tom Cruise had turned out to be super evil because he's never played super evil. Right. And I think that's right. Like having, yeah, it's um, a nice bit of misdirection in terms of yeah. casting in that regard. Well, I think, I think he film, was super evil. It was just what he did to the script. Okay, well, that's a different story. But you know what I'm saying that, right? Like I didn't think, I thought, oh, you know, I love this actor. He's so kind of adorable and nice and just, you know, believably kind of parental that, yeah. So I was like, took me a while. I didn't get it the second I saw him that he was the bad guy. I was like, um, I expected that he was going to, you know, come through at the last minute and be somehow related or, you know, some kind of help to one woman that we didn't know about and suddenly, you know. That was another uh, interesting thing too that just in mentioning, uh, saying the title of the film again, you know, it's interesting to note that in the course of the entire movie, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think she's ever referred to once as Wonder Woman. Is that right? Good call. I didn't catch Oh, yeah, I don't think so. I think she's only called, you know, Diana or... Or whatever, maybe the other Diana of whatever that she the thing yeah. she says over and over again. But I don't think she's ever once referred to as Wonder Woman, which I actually really appreciated. I thought that was kind of cool that they keep that kind of out of the 
pantheon of, of uh, how that might come into play later if they ever do say that in the right. Justice well, okay, League so, film or something. So while we bring cool. that up, I'm going to bring up the lasso of truth or whatever its name is because I thought that looked really good and it could. it's very easy to make that look very weird and hokey. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was actually really curious to hear what you guys thought of that too, because that was another effect that I thought was was great. Like it was, it, it reminded me a lot of the uh, the cloak in Doctor Strange. It had that same kind of yeah. like character, like it was a character unto itself in a way, although it was always controlled by one of the the Amazon, uh, whether it was Wonder Woman or uh, or someone else. Um, but I I thought that that was the sort of self-luminescent kind of quality that it had. And then also the animation of it, I thought was really pretty successful. Yeah, no, I thought it was really good. In fact, it's funny you should mention that because I, I hadn't really thought of it in that context. But um, I, I thought what you were going to say is when my daughter was sitting with me, she's like, so where's the invisible plane? And I'm like... <laughs> well, it's right there. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you just can't but, see um, it. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, my point is, uh, yeah, the, 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 the lasso is kind of right up there with uh, the village people and kind of camp ridiculous, you know. Mm -hmm. And so if you can pull stuff like that off, you're going pretty well. Um, I, I've, the, the only other one I think, because like I'm the same level as that, is like I was sort of wondering how on earth they were ever going to get Captain America to wear such a ridiculous costume. And they had such a great device in the film of uh, that film of coming up with, you know, like, oh, it is a costume for for PR purposes, right. which makes it ridiculous, which excuses us him having it. And then a couple of times later, they, you know, why are you going to put on the ridiculous costume? Well, because if you go to war, you wear a uniform. And it was just, it was a good payoff. And I felt like this one was the same. Like it was, it could have been ridiculously camp and, and just silly. Um, but the visual effects of it, yeah, I think that's where it, it really paid. And the way that it played with its um, motion in the air and again, not being... Uh, in my mind, it wasn't supernatural in the way that uh, the cloak was. So it didn't have a mind of its own. It was a believable, it didn't sort of lift a tank up and then flick it backwards and then sort of nod and wink and jump back on her hip again. Um, I felt it was like a believably, uh, like a device, like a good sword that, uh, and, and because they smashed the sword and stuff, I thought, yeah, these guys have thought about the props. But you know it's funny though like is they I thought they did achieve a nice balance of you know realism and the sort of supernatural qualities something that I guess I I I guess I I know the story of Wonder Woman kind of vaguely you know like before going to see this movie um just from the the Linda Carter show like in the 70s as a young kid growing up, you know, seeing that on TV. I think I, I think I sort of knew some of the lore for sure in that and maybe the Super Friends cartoon or something when I was little. But, um, but I thought it was so interesting how there was a blend of, of realism and sort of the, you know, how, how there was that aspect of her personality when she's walking through uh, no man's land in the trenches at the beginning and walking through London. Like she's like, oh, a baby. And she's so drawn to the baby. And then she sees people suffering and she wants to stop and help everyone who's suffering kind of in the way that I always sort of think Superman always that's how sure. I sort of imagined he would be, <laughs> yeah. you know, although he wasn't like that in the Superman film. But I thought that they, they had a nice balance between the realism of all that and also the supernatural quality. Because in the end, like, she is essentially, right, she's immortal, right? And she is the daughter of Zeus and I can't remember the name of her mother now, but the um, 
character played by uh, what's that actress's name? Uh, Bridget uh, Nielsen, is that right? No, or no, that wasn't Bridget uh, Nielsen. Not Bridget Nielsen, but uh, something Connie, 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 Nielsen. Uh, Connie Nielsen. Connie Nielsen. Connie Nielsen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the right last name. Yep. It's uh, it's hippo, hippo something, right? Um, Hippolia campus. Hippo. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, I'm sure a mother's names. Um, um, I I'm with you. I agree. I that's what I think drew it drew me in is that, and and obviously uh, giving credit to to Gal Gadot for selling that. I mean, you got to sell it, right? It wasn't done mm-hmm. through the magic of editing. Like she was acting her nuts off, uh, and. Uh, and I, th- and I, I, I thought, you know, it's also risky because she's not a huge star prior to this movie, yeah, right? Like, you're right. They picked she is her. Now. They picked her probably yeah, because sure. of her looks, right? Like, I mean, she and the accent and everything, like, it's ready to ready to go. But she can act, which which uh, a lot of times in in the casting for these things isn't always taken into consideration. And she carried this movie, like. We should yeah. not forget that. She like, is a movie star for sure. If, oh, if she's she, total. If she didn't work, it, nothing could have saved it, right? No visual yeah. effects. Even if the visual effects were exactly the same, the script is the same, and she was flat, like, you know, game over. So I thought she did a really good job, like to what you're saying, Matt, and the script mm-hmm. as well, obviously laying this out, of, of balancing that nature of her being like a caring, warm person uh, and then... Being like, well, fuck you! I'm gonna beat the shit out of you and get what I want. Which, well, she's she's the female she, equivalent of Christopher Reeve in that first Superman film, I think. Right? Yeah. She she touches all those. She hits all those yeah. notes, like of being kind of that that knave, that sort of fish out of water, where everything is new to her, but at the same time, too, like you know, when push comes to shove, like she does, you know, step into her power, so to speak, and become. Um, you know, she becomes, uh, you know, the great warrior, you know, as, yeah. or the, fulfills the, whatever the, uh, they sort of elude, I can't remember what they, what do they call it? She's the kill God killer or something, right? Like, well, the, <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that they say at the end, it's not the sword that's a God killer. It's you. Right. Can I think one other visual of, or maybe it's a special <clears throat> effect thing because I couldn't really tell, but I thought a, a similarly brilliant decision was the way they dealt with Dr. Poison. Um, what's her name? Uh, Dr. Um, Maru or whatever it is. Um, yeah. You know, the one that, uh, so I'm going to call her Dr. Poison because I can remember that. Um, <laughs> so I thought her facial stuff was great because she had a believably um, of the period prosthetic kind of thing. Totally. She also had yeah. something that was made a creepy but also, unlike uh, Red Skull in the first, I mean, I did not like Red Skull. Just for me, just so didn't work. It was just like such a. It was like watching, I don't know, a cartoon inserted into the film. That was just an absurdly odd head to suddenly have uh, revealed as the um, as the villain's face. Well, it was just, like that you know, prosthetic mask in Boardwalk Empire. The guy who yeah had been the World War One survivor. I don't know if, if you saw that, Mike, but. Uh, there's a character in that who had a a similar prosthesis uh, because of a, a a wound he suffered in. Oddly played by Jack Houston, who I believe is Danny Houston's son. So that's interesting, you know, just hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, so I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to cut you. No, off no I was just going to say, but like whether it was done with digital augmentation or not, I don't know. But it was a it was a good creative decision because she needed to be both evil. 
but not ridiculous. She needed to have some amount of, you needed some amount of empathy with it. And also, you know, it seemed pretty mean to just sort of go at people with facial disfigurations as some kind of like, um, so I just felt like it was a good creative decision for the amount of what they could have done, which is, you know, in various cartoons, she's had all sorts of weird um, uh, facial kind of things going on and masks and everything else. And I thought, good art direction decision, well executed by either special or visual effects, um, even though it could have been very debilitating in her ability to act because it's meant to be effectively like two porcelain sections. Um, Which yeah, I, I thought, thought they showed off really nicely and didn't shy away from the firelight scene with Chris Pine. Like They're like, mm. nope, there it is. We're not hiding it. It's not this like quick cut, quick cut kind of she's hustling through the workplace, you know, in her lab thing. Like she has a full on conversation with Chris Pine, which is also great, obviously, for character building and and understanding. Uh, And uh, but uh, I'll get to the other part in a second. But seeing getting like that was the first time in that conversation where I realized that that mask split when she spoke. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And that was a total visual effect, too, because the actress doesn't have any of that kind of. Yeah. You know. (laughs) Yeah. But just for what from a plot perspective i thought it was you know she's basically the villain until she's not right she's yep. the initial villain then danny houston's elevated to villain and then sir patrick slash aries is the villain right so you kind of layer up you know dr octagon you know or rather uh uh bruce lee style and the the um it's nice to see that in that scene, especially that she has the power in the conversation and you think she's being charmed by the guy, except for just, you know, she catches the glance of him looking at Diana Prince and she's like, Oh, nope, you're done, buddy. You blew it. Like it was really well written. I thought for, uh, and executed for that scene where you think that, okay, the man's going to come in and supersede this, this sort of female dominated scenario. And then you're like, Nope. Uh, yeah, no, I thought it, I thought so too, and I thought the the way that they worked her facial stuff was so uh, such a fine line to walk. It, you know, had it been obscuring her performance, we'd have been annoyed. And then had it been suddenly some kind of super complicated bit of magic, it would have been annoying um, and taking me out of the film. So, uh, and I'm sure that there was some digital stuff being done there, but it was so well done. No matter how much I looked at it, I couldn't pick what was going on. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. What about Can I ask you guys the, a quick? Um, oh yeah, so I just want to ask one question because I I I, I want to not walk away from the uh, obvious um, importance of the female roles here. Um, so clearly she's a great kind of role model, and it's terrific to see younger people seeing you know uh, aspirationally a woman in that role. How do we feel about the fact that her costume is from an era that totally sort of borders on sexualizing her to a dominatrix? I mean, it, it, the the Amazon costumes looked a little odd on their island, but like in the in the trenches, it I, was. I guess I what I thought was kind of cool about that, and you know maybe I'm being, you know maybe I'm being too much of a of a man here too. I don't know, but um, I think what I thought was kind of cool about it was that uh, all of the women on the island, and then uh, Wonder Woman when she or Diana when she leaves the island and. Um, you know, is sort of trying on all the period costumes, the sort of Victorian era costumes. They make a lot of really humorous allusions to it. Like when she goes to the department store and she sees the 
the corset, right? And she says, oh, is this armor for women? And it's kind of a, you know, a double, uh, not a double entendre, that's the wrong term, but it's sort of, it has a double meaning, right? Like in that it's, um, it winds up being, um, you know, true in a way, like, yes, that kind of is women's armor, but it's also like kind of, you know, in thinking of sort of the restrictive nature of that cultural time in terms of, you know, suffragettes and sort of women trying to get the vote or whatever it might be, you know, it's it's kind of a, a constricting and restrictive costuming thing that is part of a cultural paradigm that exists at the time um, to, uh, that's part of a subjugation, I would argue, of women too. Like, and so, she she's trying on all these different clothes. And at one point she says, how do women fight in these, you know? And it's sort of, they make a joke of it. And then at one point too, she puts on, I think the costume she winds up wearing as they travel um, kind of to the front or whatever. And she kicks her her boot up and like actually rips her dress, like so that she's actually capable of of moving. And, and if you look at the costume that she's wearing when she's in training on the island um, before she leaves and then sort of the, the costume that she winds up uh, taking with her um, when she travels uh, outside of the protection of the island. Um, they really are uh, costumes that, yes, do have that kind of dominatrix component to them, I suppose, for sure. Um, they're, they're certainly sexy costumes, but at the same time too, they do allow for in terms of limbs, kicking, fighting, swinging of a sword, running, um, their clothing that are allowing for a greater freedom of movement with regards to fighting, right? And I think they they try to kind of encapsulate it in that context, which for me, like, and maybe this is me being a little bit naive, but like I bought it, like I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. Like that makes sense. And so when she does travel to the front and she's wearing her costume, but she, she wears that sort of cloak over the costume, like, I don't know, I, I, there's something about that I thought was kind of cool. It was like, she I was think, like this ancient warrior kind of, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think to a certain, I agree with you hundred percent. And I think to a certain, certain extent that you are a slave to the costume to a certain, uh, because, because of the nature of the character, right? Like you can't completely change the outfit. You couldn't give her pants. Like it just wouldn't work. And I think that's just, how it is right but at the same time i think allowing her to be sexy and powerful at the same time is great i had no issues with that and honestly if you think about all the male superhero costumes they're always emphasizing the male physique muscles and tights you know pants so tight you can tell what religion they are you know what i mean so it's like yeah i I, I don't don't understand what you're saying and i but but by the same token, if you walked through a um, military base wearing that today, she'd be heckled and uh, it'd be gobsmacking. If you to, to thought that she could appear that kind of well semi naked in that period and not have every German stop shooting and just stand with their mouth open, going what the? Um, I mean, she. I don't know. It just felt like it was. People were a little quick to accept her, her Amazonian costume, where I would have imagined that you know it was considered pretty risque to see the knee, um, yet alone you know right up to the uh, bikini line. Um, but she was kind of in the same way that like I think if if we put it into the the comic book lore, right, and sort of in the comic book universe that it's taking place, and she's very much I think the only character as close to her thematically is Superman, right? Superman is an alien from another planet and and Wonder Woman is 
essentially a a god, right? Or she's maybe kind of like Demigod, Thor yeah. too, right? Like and like so her <laughs> Thor's costuming is equally ridiculous as yes. is Superman's, you could argue. Um, and so you know, I think I think in some weird way, like if if that's when she does at the front, when she does begin engaging and fighting and stuff, and we sort of see her like full bore in her costume, like, you know, traveling between uh, the trenches into no man's land or whatever. When we do see her engage in that way, the things that she's doing uh, in terms of the fighting and the sort of the leaps that she's taking, these sort of larger than life kind of anti-gravity leaps that she takes, um, you know, she's behaving in a way that is not human anymore too. And so that I think, I, I, I wonder if we can ascribe then in turn like human attributes to her costume in some weird way, you know, like, that, like for me, I was willing to sort of suspend disbelief and be like, well, yeah, like she dresses like that because that's how they dress on her island and she's a fighter and she's like half God, you know, like, like well, it, it didn't, is- it, it never really took me out of it, I guess. So, and, and I, I would love to hear what maybe some women think about that. Like, are there women who think that like, well, yeah, like it's cool to see Wonder Woman or whatever, but like, I didn't really like her costume, you know, like, and I'd, I'd really be interested in hearing that kind of perspective as well. Well, the other thing is this, what, what is the story you need to tell in the scene at No Man's Land? It's not that she could stop the Germans from fighting just by walking in, in showing her knees. You have to show her powers or her abilities that's the first time in the larger sense she shows everyone what she can do, right? I might, I yeah. might be wrong. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, so that's the story of the scene. So you're like, well, that's what we're doing. You know what I mean, like, I think, I think to divert the scene in any other way in a real in to to match realism would be disingenuous to the nature of that scene. Uh, okay, so then let me ask you this. So and I'll shut up in a second. I, I'm not because I'm not. I'm of two minds, right? I mean, I sort of agree that you don't want it to not be Wonder Woman. You don't want to be politically correct Wonder Woman and kind of ruin it. But by the same token, I don't want to have to just you know have her as a. Uh, she should be capable in her own right, and I, and I think they probably played it pretty well. Um, what do we think about the uh, Native American being in the, and the just general Americanization of the First World War agents? Do you guys, as Americans, just feel like that was all cool? Um, I mean, I think they were trying to... Because FYI, it wasn't actually a war in America. No, I, yes. Franz Ferdinand wasn't a band what? yet. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, um, I think that the American Indian worked for me because, and I kind of, I don't know why Chris Pine didn't had to be American. He could have been English, which probably would have been better. Because yeah. he was dealing with the English, like he walks right into English Parliament, basically, uh, mm. or some, you know, whatever, right? So obviously, he says he's a double agent, but he doesn't have an American accent. So is he British? That's that makes an American accent to be a double agent for America as well. I don't know, um, but I liked the um, the Indian character because when she they're around like the, the campfire and they're talking about you know what about you and your people and he's like well. His people, you know, when he's telling a story, you know, alluding to how he has no more, you know, people because of, you know, the Americans. Mm. Like, I think it was just a device to show uh, her and remind the audience that, you know, 
it's really not just the English and Germans that are having an issue here. Like everybody's fighting each other. Uh, and, uh, but but I agree with you. I actually didn't think about the the uh, why you would need an American to sell something through in a World War One scenario, other than that the studio that's making it is American, and they're like, well, we're going to get Chris Pine, and he doesn't do accents, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think you make a good point there, Mike, with regards to that piece in particular. But I think you know that group of guys, obviously, that wind up being the guys that are in the photograph that we see in the. Batman versus Superman film that sort of plays a prominent role, uh, the the black and white photograph of the team or whatever. Uh, it's the Howling Commandos, right? It's the Howling Commandos from the first Captain America movie and it's the Howling Commandos that are the sort of, you know, the you know odd characters. The I guess it's what, a Scottish guy and an Indian and a, in a I don't know if he was Pakistani or... I don't know what the Turkish what the, or something, yeah. Turkish or something, and then the the American, you know, and it's like, and then Wonder Woman, and it's like, <laughs> it's kind of the same. She's trying; they're trying to make that little band of characters that kind of team up and fight together to like, it was like you know, the solve these. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I guess, uh, you know, at least, <laughs> you know, for me, like going in and watching it, like I didn't think about that when I was watching it, but I mean, you, I think you do raise a good point, like you know. Why, why that? Like, why is that the case? Why make that choice? And I think, yeah, it's probably just probably more along the lines of what Jason's describing too. Like it's Wonder Woman is a, an American creation, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, it's a, an American studio making the movie. So I assume that's probably part of the reason for that decision making. I mean, ever since U571, I've just been aware that, you know, filmmakers can just decide to, uh, Americanize a European conflict to such an extraordinary extent. And if you remember in that film, it was about, um, you know, U-boats and uh, the mm-hmm. Enigma codes and it was all done by an American, you know, sort of naval out. And I was like, wait a second, guys. It's <laughs> a really important part of English history and you've just uh, written out uh, England from it. And in here, I did feel like the only kind of English slash UK person was a secondary character who was a Scot who didn't actually do any fighting. And it was a bit like, I could imagine some groups kind of finding that a little odd that it was so an American story of Americans defeating Germans um, for the First World War. And uh, anyway, that's just me. <laughs> um, can we can we talk about the ending battle? Yes. That's like, mm. It's like multi-tiered, you know, uh, the fight with Danny Houston and then the ultimate fight with Ares and, you know, things like her picking up a tank and, uh, you know, there's, I think there's some, some good and bad things about that larger battle. What do you think, Matt? Yeah. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think, right. The, the tank, is that in the end battle at the air station or Mm -hmm. is that at the, it is? Okay. So, uh, yeah, she picks up a big land ship at one point, right? Uh, but before that, I think she picks up and hurls a um, a smaller vehicle that has a turret on the top of it, right? Uh, I don't know. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I sort of found it interesting as she, uh, we sort of go on that journey with the character. Like I felt like we sort of go on that journey with her where she is discovering the world uh, that she's never seen before and, you know, fighting for these things that uh, I think are sort of pure in nature in terms of how she experiences 
uh, our world of you know good and evil and right and wrong and and she's also discovering her powers and her abilities and her strength um, and as she, as the, those things kind of escalate she becomes a bigger and bigger hero uh, in a lot of ways and so as she uh, you know first hurls the one vehicle um, uh, I I didn't really think much of it I think uh, and then when she picks up the tank which uh, was sort of the the huge event, right? And she, uh, it's sort of, that's where she crossed the line into like kind of Superman territory, you know, like in a, in a cool way, I thought in the story. Um, And in that big battle at the end, the two that both take place, I think it starts at least in that watchtower um, where she has the standoff with the, uh, what did you call him? The, the general guy, Uh, you guys, Uh, who Danny Houston? character Ludovic or whatever yeah 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 Yeah. the guy who's like uh huffing and puffing on the little capsules yeah yeah strength giving potion yeah yeah and um I mean I thought that was really cool it was sort of like you know she's kind of coming it's it's the the hero's journey right she's sort of confronting and coming to grips with like you know her her naivete and her lack of knowledge and awareness and sort of like you know, trying to make a decision about what's right and wrong. He sort of invites her to participate, you know, like that we're different and we can do these things. Was that him or was that the other No, guy? Aries does that. That's, okay, the, so. that's the standard, You, we can rule these so I'm, I'm confusing together. my two yeah. stories here. No, but Danny but, Houston, uh, uh, the Ludovic character, that's why it was like, that's why I liked it, it was a little rope-a-dope because they're like, he's the obvious villain. He's the red skull right. kind of like yeah, yeah. guy who's, you know, army guy who wants to defeat everyone and rule the galaxy and, or whatever it is. And, and he has some super strength because of a device and he, he becomes actually the first person that she actually kills because I intentionally in the movie, right. if I'm not mistaken, right. right? Like she make, you mm-hmm. see her make that choice. Because uh, he's disabled on the roof, and then you see, uh, she decides, okay, this is the moment. She kills him, and now you know everything's supposed to be done, and she can relax, but nothing happens. And then obviously the reveal. Yep. Um, my issue, and I like that whole scene. My issue, just I think it's just after that with the tank, and I'll, I'll, I'm jumping around, but mm-hmm. I had no issue with her ability to to do that with the tank. I thought the tank looked a little uh, sort of light for her, like not for her specifically as a character, just in general as someone picking up a tank. Like it felt like a toy. And I know that for someone who's super strong, it probably would, but I still, I don't know. There was something about it that felt uh, too, too light to Mm -hmm. me. Like it was too easy for her to pick it up. Um, And again, I don't mean her specifically, just a character, yeah, well, I, I think, mean, I think I you're think talking it, about is the weight of it, right? I mean, it's the yeah, weight. It just an it object didn't doesn't look have like she weight. had any weight. Yeah. That, so it can didn't I just have any weight to it? So I totally agree with you. And you know, the problem is, is that things fall at the same speed, no matter what size they are, right? Mm-hmm. Notwithstanding wind resistance. Yeah. And so some of the stuff they did with the tank just didn't feel like it had weight. But I mean, you know, I, you can criticize it from a maths point of view, but it's. It's, it's, I think not so much that it's, uh, you know, dropping wrong. I think it's like that it didn't balance right. It like, it's, it's, uh, so the, the 
gravity drop, obviously things drop at the same rate, but leverage is completely different, right? Like if you have a yeah. long thing sitting out and a lot of weight on it, it's going to have a huge amount of leverage, which is why a, a pole can move a, you know, a large rock. And so I felt for me that that was a leverage problem. Like it would be a thing of that mass at times would need more counterbalancing as it were um, yeah. because it would exert so much force as a lever as opposed to a dropping weight because it's it's a complicated problem but it's yeah it's your physics brain just going hmm, doesn't match with my understanding of it looks must it must be hollow like, hence yeah. to right and hurling yeah. an object like that it's going to have weight like in one area more than another probably too which is going to cause it to like either spin fall or drop in a particular fashion right like cuz it's it's not going to be evenly weighted all throughout the object right <laughs> um, throughout the tank yeah and and i mean you have a problem because you have i, I think it's a it's a brilliant idea to contain the battle to an airstrip because it wasn't destroying all of london right um, it wasn't destroying, you know, a whole city. It wasn't like all of Berlin is wrecked, New York, et cetera. Um, so that was totally plausible. I, I did wonder how far they would go in the supernatural thing, and especially for me, actually, the shot that failed most in that it was uh, her flying at the end uh, mm -hmm. from uh, modern-day France. But, oh, yeah. Um, I just didn't think she could fly. But, uh, yeah, so when she was doing that, Maybe but she was there in the was, invisible jet. Maybe, but in the uh, superhero pose of uh, one arm forward, yes. one arm one yeah, maybe back. Should, yeah. Maybe it's a I bed. I think there were, a chair. there were a number of times though when she sort of flew or jumped yeah. at great distances where I think the, the problem we've talked about oftentimes on this show in terms of these superhero characters, I know Spider-Man uh, got a lot of... Um, uh, Critique, if I'm not, if I remember correctly, oh, yes. from you, Mike. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's a uh, there's a leaping and a and a, and a moving through space um, that seems to defy physics in ways that are they look. It's it's not that you can't have a character who defies physics. I think you can do that, but it's everything else seems so grounded and like she does obey the laws of gravity and stuff when she's walking around on the planet and, and what have you. But then when she, she does these large scale jumps, the, the arc and the trajectory of the jump often feels. Uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like it, a parabolic, doesn't feel like yeah, a parabolic yeah. arc. And, and exactly. so the only way you can justify that is if they have either A, a wire rig or B, other form of propulsion that's happening while they're in the air. And so that's my problem with her is when she jumps up on that clock tower, um, my 3D problem with that is not so much she can jump up there. I mean, if they want to make a jump by all means. But if you continue in that trajectory, you have to either be lifted by the wires or have a jetpack under your cape mm -hmm. or be able to fly the way Superman can. But you don't get there from a propulsion method of pushing off from the ground and therefore just, you know, uh, accelerating out and arcing up the way a uh, cannonball does, right? Um, so, yeah, it just felt like it was a cannonball. Craft taco that, night. Well, it, it, it turned in from a cannonball, I was going to say, to a rocket. And she doesn't yeah. seem like she has some kind of propulsion system that's inherent in her makeup. Maybe she does, but it, it, it wasn't revealed enough that she could just do a Superman kind of loop the loop and fly around and hop up. So therefore I assumed she was being propelled from kinetic energy being expelled by pushing back on the ground that she was heading off from, in which case I get into a whole lot of issues. So what, what did we think of, uh, of Ares in general? Like, um, Jason, did you have any thoughts I, about I thought like, he his was design? Awesome. He was sufficiently heavy metal. 
for me, very Frank Frazetta, Death Dealer. Yeah. Uh, straight up, I'm totally in with all that Molly Hatchet, you know, album covers. Um, but just prior to that, like, I love the way that he revealed Slow. And so he first shows up, he's talking to her, and you're like, okay, obviously he's a bad guy, but like, in what way? And then when he disappears and shows yeah. up and is like poofing around, like, that was really well done because it was really subtle. They didn't go with like a nightcrawler kind of gassy poof. You know, it was just like, he just sort of was, was like, no, I can do, like, it's, it's all editorial. Like, I can do anything I want. No, he did disappear at times when she went to swipe at him. He would kind oh, of, sh- he? he wouldn't be there. And maybe yeah. it was just an, a good cut uh, to sell it. It's hard to, I can't remember, but, I don't um, <laughs> but then, but then once he, once he gives it up and they start having a conversation and he, and he sort of drops the garb and pulls like basically metal like he just pulls materials to him and forms them into his thing and mm-hmm. for me the the killer shot of all of his when he takes his three fingers and like cuts the eye holes like face in the mask yeah. with his hands Excellent. I was like yeah. I was like that's so right. well done that that's, was so well done yeah uh, and then from there I was totally in I was like all right this is going to be great cuz I like that it wasn't a Magneto style. I'm just going to th- hurl things at you because I I can control things. It was I'm going to make weapons. Uh, I'm going to make weapons out of all the things that are coming to me, uh, swords and you know actual pliable things beyond the obvious you know lightning and things like that. But I I, I like that he made weapons uh, out of his out of his you know, surroundings. Mm, yeah. I agree. And and they were believable, right? Like I think the destruction sims, the the way the metal kind of worked, like the rendering of it, like the yeah, you know, the shading, like it was dark when it should have been, and like obviously probably wasn't fully spanning the the um, highlight range that you'd get from explosions and stuff. But it was doing a pretty good job. I mean, I think the rendering team and the sims team did an outstanding job. Yeah, agreed. So uh, I'm curious. Uh, so maybe uh, starting with you, Mike, uh, did you have a uh, like a favorite uh, shot or favorite sequence in this movie in particular? Well, I think I've already spoiled that by saying it was crossing no man's land because it was a mm. just a, a a super ask to pull that off. She looks absurd in one sense, and in the film, I was like totally behind her. Thought it was great. Was you know really kind of rooting for the character uh, against the bad guys in you know positive terms. And I'd like the joke set up when she started taking off her jacket before she left the trenches <laughs> and kind of Chris's kind of what the you know. So I, I thought it was all really well set up, well played yeah. out. And then the no man's land for once didn't look like a soundstage and had real uh, depth to it without that just fighting what was going on. Good mix of everything. So yeah, that would be the. And it's such an important shot. If that had failed and been silly and we'd started laughing at her, then uh, yeah, yeah. all is lost. Jason, what about you? Anything in particular really really stand out? I mean, I think I, I think I also spoiled my favorite by saying the final battle between Wonder Woman and Ares. Uh, I think was really for, you know, again, like Mike said, for a superhero uber-destruction you know, thing, they didn't just completely destroy like, you know, 100 square miles of countryside. Yep. Um, yeah. It was fairly contained. It was, you know, you, there was multiple action storylines going on where Chris Pine had to fly the thing and his character's arc ended. You know, all the guys were had the the rest of the of the untouchables, you know, mm-hmm. had had accepted their fate and they were just like, OK, we've done everything we can do. We're ready to die. 
you know, and and then she pulls it all together. They're saved. Everyone's, you know, sort of wrapped up their storylines. And the, again, the cinematography and the the direction and, and VFX of the final fight, to me, were some of the best superhero battles. Because, again, it's like, it's, you know, they either of them can do anything, but there was enough restriction that they could have a fight you could follow besides the the obvious, you know, emperor, you know, come with me and we can rule the galaxy together, um, which is totally fine because they're gods, they're demigods, or, well, he's a god and she's a demigod. Yeah. Uh, and that it destroyed the film if Chris had done something that facilitated her winning the battle. Right. It, he was you know, the mansel in distress. Yeah, but if he hadn't, if yeah. he'd been like, here, I'll just do this one thing that means that you can defeat him, it would have been like just crushing for the right i just also also it allows her it allows her character to end her arc as well because her arc wasn't just um her her goal wasn't just to kill aries over time it was to connect to she didn't know it was to then connect with someone and feel love you know which she which she says in the end love is the thing that you know is the whole is what it's all about and, you know, she does that with, with Chris Pine. And I kind of liked that they went back to that scene where she couldn't hear him because of the explosion. Yeah, that was cool. And went back to him and kind of tied it all up. All right. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I was just going to say real quick, uh, I know Mike's got to get going here, but uh, I just wanted to say real quick, the, the one thing I, I just wanted to give a shout out to that I thought was really great in this picture too was the, uh, the scene in... Um, the alleyway when they first arrive in London where oh, yeah. she stops the bullet from the muggers, which was a reverse of the scene from the Richard Donner Superman where Superman catches the bullet uh, from the mugger that's fired uh, at Lois Lane. So I thought that was really cool, like kind of flipping that around and replaying that whole scene again where she's kind of the one who has agency as opposed to uh, was it, Superman. Was it a Superman one. reference with the glasses as well? The absurdity that you could put a pair of oh, glasses probably. on? Yeah, I think note? so. Yeah. Because <laughs> that was pretty funny. I can't tell it's Superman because he's got glasses on. I think we've uh, we should probably wrap this one up. We're getting uh, a little over an hour here, but um, let's see, uh, uh, Mike. Uh, where can people uh, find out more about what you're up to and what's going on with you? But to tell you the truth, obviously, most people know me, FX guy. I'd love it if anyone's coming to Sidgraf, if they'd come and visit me at uh, the VR Village. So my plug this week is come to Sidgraf in LA. Come to the VR Village and uh, and meet me there. You're very keen to meet your Sidgraf. Excellent. And Jason, uh, I'll actually say the same because I am. I might have. I have a job that came up that happens to be exactly around Sidgraf in LA. Awesome. So my goal is to be there. So I will be probably standing with Mike. I hope at some point and Matt. Uh, cool. So that's where I'll be if I can make it happen at all. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping I'll make it out to Seagraph this year too. We'll see. Uh, I'm not 100% sure at this stage. I might have a project that I'm working on in, of all places, Minnesota <laughs> that mm. week. But we'll see uh, what how it all shakes out. But um, but uh, thanks, you guys. Uh, as always, uh, you know, we, we really thank all of you guys out there for, for listening to the show. And um, any feedback that you guys have, uh, by all means, 
don't hesitate to let us know on uh, on the Twitters or on the FX Guide um, comment section on the website. We'd love to hear from you guys and hear what you guys think about uh, the show or if you have any thoughts or theories or comments or um, things that you'd like us to um, discuss or explore on future episodes. By all means, please let us know. Um, but uh, yeah, with that, I think uh, we've got some other great uh, films coming up that we'll be reviewing this summer. I know... Uh, I saw a trailer for, uh, of all things, I think it was Atomic Blonde, which looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. Could have some interesting visual effects in it. We'll see. For that. But yeah, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll see you uh, next time on the VFX show. Um, take it easy. See you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.